Well, yes, it is the halfway point, uh, week 10 of our 20-week series, uh, zooming right out uh, and seeing the big story uh, in the Bible. Normally speaking, uh, just to say, we would usually work our way uh, slowly but surely, meticulously, verse by verse, through a single book in the Bible. Uh, This term, we're going to the other extreme altogether. The reason being, I think there's tremendous value in seeing how the whole story fits together. But you don't need me to tell you that the Bible is an incredibly long book. It took over 2,000 years to write, It's made up of 66 separate books. It was actually written by 44 different authors across nine different countries and three separate continents. And we, ambitiously, are trying to squeeze the entire Bible into just 20 separate 40-minute talks. Now, you might be sitting there thinking that that sounds absolutely crazy, But really, that's not as crazy as what the people in the actual story tried to do. It's like, time and time again, we've seen them trying to squeeze Almighty God into a small box. It's as though they decided for themselves what God would and wouldn't do. It's like, he wouldn't mind this. Not really all that bothered by that. Certainly not interested in that area of my life. They pretty much defined God in a way that was convenient and suited them. They reduced him down and down and down and down until he would fit into a small, non-threatening box. If you think about it, trying to squeeze the Lord of the universe into a domesticated box is both ridiculous and pretty insulting. Remember, Abraham knew God as the Most High. Moses knew him as the Great Deliverer. Joshua knew him as the Conqueror. David wrote in Psalm 24 verse 1 that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And Solomon, David's son, grasped that even his magnificent new temple could never really shut God in, couldn't really ever contain God. In 1 Kings 8 verse 27, Solomon, as he dedicates the whole temple, prays out, will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. It's like this massive theme running through the whole story. God cannot and in fact will not fit into our boxes. He is uncontainable. But somehow, somewhere along the way, God's people lost sight of this. Like they thought that God dwelt above the Ark of the Covenant, kind of a golden box, in the temple, a slightly bigger box, in Jerusalem, an urban box, in the land of Judah, their national box. And so in 586 BC, when the Babylonians moved into the region, destroying the Ark and the temple and Jerusalem and Judah, the Jews assumed it was game over for God's story. They'd squeezed God into a box of their creation, and now the box was destroyed. They thought it was all over for God. In reality, as we're going to see today, God was only just getting started. 
God's people were carried off onto foreign ground to the very last place that they expected God to be at work. And as we're going to see this morning, God breaks out all over the place. It's like he's saying, I'm going to show you uh, and I'm going to show every other subsequent generation in human history that I do not and I will not fit into a box. I'm uncontainable. Listen, the place where you think God is least likely to be at work, think for a moment where that might be. Your work, perhaps, maybe where you live, your school, where you study, your friendship group, your family, maybe. The place where you think God is least likely to work may well be the place where God wants to break out and surprise you. Two books that we're going to be looking at today, Daniel and Esther, are in different parts of the Bible. They're separated because Daniel was thought of as a book of prophecy. Andy last week touched on Daniel uh, amongst 16 other prophets. We're going to return to Daniel today. And Esther was considered not a prophetic book, uh, but as a historical book. Actually, they fit together. Both of them were written at a time when Israel, God's people, was in exile in Babylon and Persia. Book of Daniel spans 605 to 536 BC. Daniel is taken to Babylon as a teenager, as part of the earliest group of Jewish exiles. And by the end of the book, he's in his 80s and still going for God. That's the book of Daniel, 605 to 536 BC. The book of Esther is set in Persia between 483 and 473 BC, a much smaller window of time. But they're both in places where the Jews basically thought, God's not the least bit interested in doing anything here. That was the disaster of the exile. It wasn't just that God's people were taken away from their home, they felt, they lived, they believed as though God wasn't with them anymore as though they'd been taken away from the very presence of God. And so God sets about showing them and us that whatever boxes you make for the living God, he's just going to keep on breaking right through them. Because God loves you. And God is interested in your whole life. There is not an area of your family life or your work life or your study life, or your social life. There, there is nothing in your life, no area, no domain of your life that God isn't passionately committed to being with you in. If you're not a Christian, I'd be sitting there thinking, well, this just isn't for me. I'm telling you, this absolutely is for you. We're going to be looking at two books of the Bible that demonstrate loud and clear God's desire to reach right outside those who had classed themselves as his people. That These two books really are God's invitation to you, not only to understand what he's doing in the world, but also to get on board with it yourself. And if you are a Christian, God wants to challenge you again and again and again and again, please don't limit me. It's like we expect God to, to show up at church meetings, 
but we perhaps don't expect him to turn up at work or at school or when we're out with certain groups of people. The big danger for Christians is that we can compartmentalize our lives and say, God's interested in this area, but not that one. Work, home, my relationships, my finances, that's really nothing to do with God. This whole message is about God wanting to burst out of the boxes that you've created for him. Because he really is interested in every area of your life. So let's get into the story. It all begins with King Nebuchadnezzar's mission to control the whole of the ancient world. And his strategy was absolutely brutal. He instructed his armies to murder, to slaughter all the women and children so that his enemies wouldn't grow up and over time rise up and avenge him. And so when he finally reached Jerusalem and ransacked the city, most of the Jews were brutally slaughtered. The only ones that were spared were the brightest and the strongest. Those are the people who were taken captive to Babylon in order eventually to serve in the king's palace, which is where Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, enter the whole story. They were among those who escaped death, having seen probably their family and their closest friends brutally murdered, but then forced to go and work for the one who had instigated those awful, awful crimes, Nebuchadnezzar himself. On arrival in Babylon, Daniel and his friends were straight away enrolled into classes, The whole aim was to indoctrinate them with the thinking of Babylon and its idols. The aim was to separate them from their past and instill into them a belief that their puny Jewish God had absolutely no place in Babylon, absolutely no place whatsoever in their future. It's like their God was completely irrelevant, not just in their work, but in society as a whole. And tragically, Many of the Jews believed the lie hook, line, and sinker. They started believing that God's big story really had ended in failure. But not Daniel and his friends. As we're going to see, when you believe that God is who he says he is, it changes, it transforms your whole life. Listen, if Christianity is nothing more than just coming to a church meeting on a Sunday, maybe a few midweek activities when you can fit them in, and of course celebrating Christmas and Easter, if that's all it is, then you are so missing out on what it's meant to be. These two books are telling us that God wants to walk 24-7 through the whole of life with us. Let me just pick out some of the main events that happened. The reason I want to do that it isn't so much to give you a history lesson, you'll be relieved to hear. I actually want to raise your eyes, kind of open your eyes to try and see a little more clearly, a little more vividly what God might actually want to do in your life. You see, these two books touch on three areas of life where I think many Christians nowadays assume God is just not interested. Here's the first one. 
our work. Our work. Daniel, as we join the story, starts off as a teenager getting educated in order effectively to become a civil servant. He's kind of at school, kind of at college, kind of at work, and kind of in government. And all around him, his contemporaries, his peers who have been taken to Babylon like him, were pretty much thinking, if we're going to survive here, we've just got to keep our heads down and try and fit in with the people around us. I think we can feel that same pressure today, can't we? We live in a culture that tells students to keep their face out of the classroom, which tells workers they're unprofessional if they bring their face into the office. Daniel shows us how to resist this pressure to compartmentalize our lives. One of the first things we can learn from Daniel is that he isn't petty. He's not a troublemaker. Pretty much straight away, King Nebuchadnezzar changed Daniel's name to Belteshazzar. Daniel meant God is my vindicator. Belteshazzar means the Babylonian idol Bel will stop anything bad happening to the king. Not quite so pithy, that one. Uh, It's also like the complete opposite meaning of what his name was supposed to mean. I mean, it, it seemed like a big deal. But Daniel allows Nebuchadnezzar to rename him. He's like, whatever, it's just a name. You can call me whatever you want, but I'm going to keep on serving the Lord. You can call me whatever you like. I I, I don't care. The most important thing to me is that I know God is with me in the midst of this situation, whatever you call me. And then when he's educated in Babylonian mythology and literature and forced to study their beliefs and their gods, He's fine with that. He's like, you can teach me this stuff because ultimately I know my God's bigger than all of this. All you're doing is telling me how to share my faith with you more effectively. Daniel doesn't have a persecution complex. He doesn't live with this kind of victim mentality. He doesn't feel the need to fight everything. But there comes a point where Nebuchadnezzar decrees that all the civil servants need to eat the meat that's been sacrificed to the idols. And that's when Daniel says, you know what, actually I'm not going to do that. His supervisor finds out, uh, tries to change his mind. He's like, listen, if you don't eat the meat, the king will chop my head off and after he's chopped my head off, he'll come looking for you and do the same to you. But Daniel stands his ground No matter where I am, whether I'm in Jerusalem or Babylon, God is God and I am going to put him first. Have you ever had that kind of moment at work? I don't know, perhaps you're expected to massage statistics or adjust data, ignore product defects or misappropriate assets. Maybe you're encouraged to control with bullying and fear, to destroy someone else's reputation. Maybe right now, you are feeling the pressure to compartmentalize your faith, to compromise your faith for the sake of your career. I think what Daniel shows us is that our work is just as much worship to God as anything else we do in our lives. And like with Daniel, God honors those who put their faith in him even when it might appear to be career suicide. 
Here's what happens with Daniel and his friends. Daniel 1 verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Now look, I'm not promising you, I can't guarantee that if you honour God, you will end up ten times better than all of your work colleagues or your classmates. I'm not making that promise to you today. However, if you at least recognise that God is already with you in your work, it does change everything. Here's how. First of all, God gives us a new identity without which work would sink us. I'm trying to explain that. I think if we fall into the trap of defining ourselves by our work, I'm a doctor, I'm a teacher, I'm a shop assistant, I'm an MD, then our identity, our self-worth, our significance comes from our career. And so if we're successful... We have the potential at least to end up proud and if we're not so successful and all the time we're getting our worth and our significance from our position then we have the potential of ending up wrecked feeling like we're nothing. I think the irony is that this often cripples us from performing our best in our work because we're tempted to always play it safe out of fear of failure. But if we go to work securing the knowledge that our identity is as loved, accepted children of God, then it releases us, it frees us to be the very best we can. God gives us a new identity without which work would sink us. Second, God gives significance to all work without which work would merely be dull a lot of the time. Let's face it. A lot of work can just seem boring, mundane, monotonous. But if even the simplest, the most menial tasks are part of God's work, they're part of our worship to Him, it gives our work a whole new sense of purpose. God gives significance to all work, without which work would merely be dull. Third, God gives us hope without which work could exhaust and frustrate us. You ever work really hard on a project? I mean, that feeling that you've got nothing at all to show for it. What's the point of that? We can so easily get discouraged that our work is in vain. But this life is not all there is. Absolutely nothing will be wasted in eternity. I don't know, maybe you work in the health service or in education or in the legal profession. Maybe you design things or build things or mend things or dismantle things. Maybe you long to see more justice and righteousness and peace. Maybe you're desperate for more people to live for God. You know, we have the sure and certain hope that it will happen it will happen. 
if not in this life, for sure in the new heaven and the new earth. God gives us hope without which work could exhaust and frustrate us. And fourthly, God gives us his Holy Spirit without whom we would often be powerless. Holy Spirit isn't merely given to us to make our church meetings ever so slightly more exciting and interesting. Now, he is God's empowering presence with us 24-7. The same God who gave Daniel knowledge and understanding and wisdom is able to provide you with the help you need in your place of work, if you ask him. So as you go to work, here's my appeal to you. Please do not keep God in a box. I'm telling you, if you recognize that God is there with you in your workplace, it has the potential to change everything. The story continues. We can perhaps think that God's really never going to turn up in our workplace. He's even less likely to show up in the corridors of power. But the message of these two books is that there is really no area of life that is closed to God. And so Daniel, having honoured God in his work, ends up eventually being promoted to one of the highest ranking positions in the entire nation. It's precisely where God wanted him to be. Which brings us on to the second area I want us to look at. I want to look at the whole area of power. It's very interesting. I think as Christians, a lot of the time, we can have this really negative view of politicians and officials, which I think makes it really quite striking that Daniel and his friends roll up their sleeves and take senior positions in the government of this evil Babylonian empire. By Christians very often tend to shy away from taking on significant responsibility, maybe because it just makes it hard to attend all the church meetings. It can be ever so slightly murky. Uh, And what difference can we make anyway? Daniel says, listen, God is Lord over everything. And so he starts working for the king. And all the time, he wears his face on his sleeve. He's very clear he doesn't worship the king. Now he worships the one true God. Now look, I think one of the challenges for us today is we carry more responsibility in our place of work or in society at large is to not fall into the trap of thinking, if I don't talk too much about my face, if I try and stay underneath the radar then I might get promoted to a position of real power and then I can start making a difference. Now the truth is, very often people who adopt that approach end up so compromised along the way, they might as well not be a Christian in the first place. Daniel's not like that at all. In Daniel chapter 2, he dares to say to Nebuchadnezzar, remember this brutal, brutal dictator, he says to him that his kingdom is going to come to an end and that there is an even greater king than him. I mean, talk about dangerous. But incredibly, Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of this conversation, says to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. In chapter 4, Daniel does it again. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, you you need to understand something here. You're not the real king. 
God is. The Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and he gives them to anyone he wishes. Nebuchadnezzar's response, I haven't been humbled by God in the most devastating of ways. Here's what he says. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. It's like Daniel risks everything. He puts his neck on the line again and again and as a result he gets closer and closer to Nebuchadnezzar. Because in the end, Daniel is the one person in the empire who can be trusted to tell it as, he, as it is. No spin, no bluff, no ego, no self-interest. Just tells the truth. Tells it plain and simple. This is how it is. And so, on the night where Babylon falls to the Persians, the queen mother tells the last king of Babylon to turn to Daniel in his hour of crisis. She says, there is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, Nebuchadnezzar, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Call for Daniel. As a result, to cut a longer story short, Daniel ends up becoming one of the leading rulers of the new Persian empire which gives him an opportunity to proclaim God's power to a whole other group of nations. But it's not all plain sailing. If you follow this teaching, it's not an easy life. A little while later, King Darius, encouraged by his advisors, who are pretty jealous of Daniel and his influence in the empire, they dupe Darius into forbidding everyone from praying to the Lord for 30 days. Daniel refuses ends up being thrown into a den of lions. Daniel at this point is in his 80s. If anyone might have been excused for playing it safe, I mean, I've done my bit, I passed the baton on to someone else, I'm just going to draw my pension, enjoy my retirement, kind of live out my final days, just enjoying myself. No, not Daniel. Even in his 80s, he's a radical, radical man. He gambles one last time on the fact that God is with him. The king of Persia is so impressed that he issues a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. You know, God's given us a big vision as a church. We dream of the day, don't we, when Jesus will be the most talked about person in Birmingham. We, we, we dream of being for the good of our whole city. Even bigger than that, we, we dream of impacting nations. Now here's how we will grow in influence. By not seeing power as a dirty thing or something to be avoided. By getting involved in every aspect of our city's life by saying I'm willing to become a counsellor, I'll volunteer to be a school governor, I'll step up and lead the PTA, 
Uh, I'll do things that put myself out in order to help other people. I'll go for that promotion. I'll take on more responsibility at work. But I won't do it as some kind of undercover secret Christian who never wants to offend people by talking about my faith. No, I'll be like Daniel. I'll say, ultimately, you can't have me without having my faith as well. God is part and parcel of who I am. I can't just keep him in a box out of this context. This is very much who I am. I can't not bring God to work because the Holy Spirit, God himself, lives in me. You may be tempted to put God in a box and leave him out of your workplace or your studies. You may be tempted to assume he really isn't interested in politics or in helping you to make a difference in your community. Here's how someone called Abraham Kuyper explained his reasons for quitting church leadership in order to become the Prime Minister of the Netherlands. This is what he says. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. which takes us on to Esther. So much in this remarkable story. I've only got a few minutes left, so I just want to touch, thirdly, on the whole area of family. If you watch the film 300, anyone seen the film 300? Yeah, a few people. Uh, you, you'll know that King Xerxes of Persia, he was one of the bad guys. Uh, the book of Esther begins uh, just before the film begins with the great party which Xerxes threw in 483 BC before his commanders set out to invade Greece. Xerxes gets completely and utterly drunk, decides to summon his wife so that his friends can basically lust after her. Perhaps not surprisingly, she refuses, at which point the king banishes her. It's the kind of guy he is. Anyway, he goes off with his armies to fight the Spartans and without wishing to give you too many spoilers, if you ever do decide on the strength of this sermon to watch the film 300, hoping there's some further application you take out of this message, but if that's the only thing, don't want to spoil it too much for you, but basically he loses, and when he returns home with his tail between his legs, he makes a priority of finding a new wife, and so he creates a harem of the most beautiful women in his empire. One of them is this Jewish girl named Esther. And the king is so taken with her that he declares Esther the new official queen. Now, it might sound to you like a bit of a Cinderella story. It really isn't. Esther ends up trapped in a loveless marriage with a husband who's constantly cheating on her and is an all-round nasty piece of work. There are massive things going on in Esther's life He never takes an interest in any of it. It's like he's just after one thing from her. She's in a terrible, terrible family situation. And it's like, through Esther, God is saying to us, it doesn't matter what's going on in your family, how bad your family life is right now, I'm there with you. If you need help, in your marriage. I'm there for you. 
If you need my help with your kids, I'm there for you. If, if you're married to someone who doesn't follow me and makes your life a nightmare, I'm there with you. If you were at the carol service last night, we heard three powerful, powerful stories of God working in incredibly difficult family situations, working through unemployment and homelessness and abuse and the loss of a child, the tragic death of a brother. And in each situation, the person telling the story saying, no, God was there with me in the midst of it all. I see the gracious hand of God guiding me through it all, not necessarily giving me an easy life, but giving me strength in the midst, really tough family situations. Same God is available to you in the midst of your family. This incident in Esther chapter 4 pretty much sums up God's message to us this morning. Esther's cousin Mordecai comes to her and says, who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. I think if I'm Esther, I'm thinking, what do you mean? I come to this position for such a time as this. My life is a daily nightmare. And you're saying that God has brought me to this position? Yes, absolutely he is, has. Wherever we live, wherever we work, wherever we study, wherever we have friends and family, that is the place where God has placed us right now in order to demonstrate, to showcase his power. God may or may not rescue you or deliver you from those situations, but I do know for sure there is much more of his power for you to experience right where you are, even today. That's one of the massive themes running right through Daniel and Esther. As people believe there is no foreign ground for God, as people believe that God can and will work right where they are, God starts saving people left, right and centre. Nebuchadnezzar, this brutal dictator, the the, the guy who destroyed Jerusalem, ends up humbly worshipping God. King Darius, the king of Persia, encounters God through Daniel. And Esther, not only saved the Jewish race, but also brought salvation to the nations of the world. Esther 8 verse 17 tells us, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating, and many people of other nationalities became Jews. Really, wherever you're at today, The reason I'm sharing this message is because I want you to see that God can meet you wherever you're at, whether it's at work, at school, in your studies, as you carry more responsibility, as you step up and carry more influence in your family. Really, there is no area of life that is closed to God. God. 